Well, good evening, ladies. How are we tonight? My name is Heather. I'm one of your teachers. And prior to becoming a full-time mom to my sweet little two-and-a-half-year-old, who's mostly sweet, sometimes she throws fits, um, but prior to being a full-time mom, I taught kindergarten for eight years. And those eight years were such a joy. I truly loved going to work every day, seeing life through the eyes of a five and six-year-old. Each year during Meet the Teacher Night, I would tell parents what they can expect by sending their sweet little baby to kindergarten. And while kindergarten is largely academic, it is unique. It's that child's first full-time academic experience. Therefore, kindergarten is a year of training. So what does that mean? It will be a year of lots of rules. So your sweet little baby who never gets in trouble might get in trouble, but that is okay. Minor consequences for minor offenses. But rules exist for the good of the student and for the good of the class. As their teacher, I would gather them at the carpet and I would invite them in setting the standards for behavior. And I got to tell them about a special reward that they would receive if they did choose to obey. And that would be a trip to the treasure chest. And these days were just full of celebration. It was so exciting. And as their teacher, truly, I love these days. I love celebrating that what they had chosen to do, which was obey and make good and wise choices, was indeed a treasure. So today, as we study the Ten Commandments, we're going to see that God is inviting the Israelites in to joyful obedience through loving God and through loving their neighbor. And we might be tempted to think that the Ten Commandments are these strict rules where God is just waiting to punish us if we fail him. But what I want you to see today in the text is a loving father who is instructing his children in wisdom and warning them of the danger of sin. You see, obedience leads to life, but disobedience leads to death. And so the Bible tells one story. Let's review where the original audience has come from and where they're going. So God has made a covenant with Abraham, and he promises that all nations will be blessed through him, and he will give his people the promised land. But a severe famine comes, and Joseph brings Abraham's family to Egypt. And this saves their life, and it results in the growth of a great nation. But Joseph passes, and a new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph or the Israelites. And this Pharaoh inflicts immense suffering upon the nation of Israel. And it's through the miraculous acts of judgment against Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt that God delivers Israel out of slavery. But the story does not end with salvation. You see, we often see rules as the opposite of freedom. The Israelites were freed from rule, but they were not freed from all rule. God had saved them with a purpose to serve him. So what does freedom really look like? Does that mean that we get to do whatever it is that we want to do? 
and serve no one but ourselves? How would that translate in a kindergarten classroom? Well, chaos <laughs> and no trips to the treasure chest, I'll tell you that. But how does that translate in society? The book of Judges is a very hard read because it narrates an increase of evilness and rebellion. Judges 17.6 says, in those, day, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him. So the depravity that we see in the book of Judges is a very dark picture of what happens when people live for themselves. We see evilness increase. So to be free is to live in harmony with God and with others according to his standards. And it's going to be important tonight to note the timing of the Ten Commandments. So today as we read, we're going to see that God saves his people first, and then he gives them commandments after he saves us. You see, salvation cannot be earned. It's a gift. It's a gift given to us, and it's initiated by God. We cannot earn it through moral deeds, being a good person. We can't earn it through checking off, um, marking off the box and going through a checklist of good behavior. Therefore, God saves us first, and it is after that we are sanctified. God's great act of redemption in the lives of his people does not center on what he has freed them from, but what he leads them to. And this week, we will see that God leads his people to love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and love others as yourselves. So why give the Israelites these Ten Commandments? And why are they necessary? Well, Israel is a new nation set apart for sanctification. And sanctification is the growing in righteousness after salvation. Another way to think of it is Christian maturity or spiritual maturity. But Israel is going to be the chosen nation that will reflect God's glory to all the other nations. And this will include God's justice how they live for God, and how they live for other people. And so the Ten Commandments are the introduction to the law. And what we will see is how they live for God, which is their vertical relationship, and how to live with others, which is a horizontal relationship. The first four commandments will be how to live for God. The next six will be how to live with others. And so the Ten Commandments will teach us how to live in right relationship with God, and then right relationship with others. So we cannot live in right relationship with others if we do not have right relationship with God first. So tonight we find the Israelites camped at Mount Sinai. They are on their journey to the promised land. And the Lord has given instructions to the Israelites to prepare, to consecrate yourselves, to meet with him. And God's presence descends mightily on the mountain. And with great power, he audibly speaks for everyone to hear. Exodus 21. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. So where have the Israelites been for the past 430 years? Egypt. 
In Egypt is a polytheistic culture, meaning the worship of multiple gods. So the first thing that God does is he audibly speaks to them and reminds him who he is and what he has done for them and that he is one. This is in contrast to Egypt and all the other surrounding nations where multiple gods are worshipped and sacrificed to. So for Israel to hear that the Lord your God is one would be completely foreign to anything that they had ever known. So God warns his people against the worship of false gods, and he calls them to be faithful to him alone. The second commandment, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. So do not worship idols. What counts as an idol? An idol is anything that we worship, whether it is something that we create or whether it's something that we love and we desire to control. How often have you had a picture taken of yourself and someone turns the phone around and you say, wow, I look great, you don't need to take another one. (laughs) Not often. We, We have multiple attempts to get the right image. Why? Because we want to be rightly portrayed. But see, one image cannot possibly capture the entirety of the best of us. And in a similar way, anything that we create an image of God to be is a reduction of him and a reduction of his character. Now, what did this mean for them then? Well, Then, they were creating and handcrafting idols to be sold and to be worshipped. Paul even addresses this in the New Testament in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath of all things. So this is saying... Do not worship the things that we create. While crafted idols are present in some cultures, what about idol worship in our culture today? What do we create, or better yet, what do we curate that we worship? Well, look no further than social media and having the perfect Instagram feed. We curate our home. We want it to be Studio McGee or Joanna Gaines or HGTV. We worship beauty and validation. We worship that perfect life that someone else is living online. We idolize the American dream as the purpose for our life. We worship idols of the heart like comfort, convenience, control, safety, health. You see, idol worship has an impact. Let's look at verse 5. The Lord says, do not bow down and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what does this mean? Jealousy, punishment, those are harsh words. 
it's actually this verse here that changed Oprah's view of God because she could not understand how a good and loving God could be jealous and could punish. And that's a very valid question. But in order to understand what this means, then we have to rightly understand what does God's jealousy mean. And see, we misinterpret this verse because we filter this through our human understanding of jealousy. And we filter, filter this through bad biblical teaching. And so human jealousy is feeling resentment against someone for their success um, or for their advantages. It's envious. It can be troubled by fears of unfaithfulness. But God's jealousy is different. You see, God's jealousy is intolerant of unfaithfulness, and it's intolerant of rivalry. Doesn't that make much more sense when we read it that way? God will not share worship that is rightly due to him with lesser things. And he is actually jealous for your good because your ultimate good and the good of mankind is found in faithfulness to God. God is jealous for your obedience because it leads to life and it brings him glory. And that stirs in you a right worship of God. So what does the text mean when it says that the consequences will carry through the generations? Who in here has ever been hurt by a family member's sin? Through a parent, through a spouse, a sibling, an in-law? So you see, sin has consequences. Sin not only affects you, but it affects the people around you. And what the text says that those who hate God relish in their sin, and they live a life of rebellion and pride. But a life lived in rebellion will most assuredly bring harm, not only to the sinner, but to those around it. And who are the people closest to the sinner? Your immediate relationships can bring harm to your family. But just as sin has a ripple effect to those around you, so does repentance. So does repentance. Who here is a believer because a family member shared the gospel with you? Who here has been encouraged in your faith or your faith has matured through the encouragement of the faith of a family member? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So godly repentance is your deliverance from death to life. And God will show steadfast love to the humble and faithful and their families will be blessed in return. At the end of this week's passage, God instructs the Israelites, do not make gods of silver and gold. Make me an earthen altar, and then he gives specific instructions. Why? Because of what we've talked about, because we are prone to worship the things that we create. You see, the worship of idols impacts generations, but obedience blesses generations. So God warns his people, do not worship creation over the creator. Commandment number three, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. So this is a somber warning. God will not ignore those who misuse his name. 
using God for dishonesty, selfish gain, or to speak of him frivolously as if disconnected from his nature and his character will not be ignored. Growing up, I used to believe that taking the Lord's name and saying, OMG, and it is sinful to speak of God with disrespect. However, misusing the name of God might not be as obvious as saying, oh my God. John Christ is a Christian comedian, and he has a bit called Christian Breakup Lines. And maybe some of you in here have heard it. And he gives some examples like this. And these are silly. Are you a river in Egypt? Because you are in denial about this relationship. Oh, I feel like, Paul, you're just a thorn in my side. And here's the golden one. Um, hey, can we talk? God told me to break up with you. It's like, oh, really? Did he? He didn't tell me that. So as I was remembering this example, I thought, oh, my gosh, I've said this. I said this when I was 15 years old to my sweet little Christian boyfriend. Totally blamed it on God. So hope he can forgive me for that. <laughs> So while this comedian uses humor, he is pointing out the obvious. Instead of being honest and just saying, hey, I don't see a future with you, someone misuses the name of God for selfish gain. Now, there are much more severe examples in the Bible, specifically for prophets that misuse the name of God. And God takes that very, very seriously. There are harsh consequences for the prophet who misspeaks on behalf of God, and they falsely misrepresent him. Misrepresentation leads to false worship. It leads people astray. It makes them question God's goodness. So God warns his people, do not misrepresent who I am. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. So why would God care about providing a day of rest? Well, rest provides relief. It provides replenishment. And it's an opportunity to reflect on who God is and what he has done. Therefore, rest is a form of worship. The Israelites have also been delivered from Egypt where they suffered greatly. And God deeply cares about the vulnerable and he protects them. By providing rest for all, God is protecting the vulnerable, and he warns the Israelites against an abuse of power. See, God doesn't just command rest for the laborers, but he commands it for everybody, all ages, all genders, all animals, all Israelites, all immigrants, all forms of life deserve rest. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord is giving you. Now, this commandment is the first to shift from our relationship with God, which is that vertical relationship, to our relationship with others, which is the horizontal relationship. You see, it's impossible to love others 
faithfully if we do not love God faithfully. And we can't possibly know how to love them well if we don't first know how to love God. And so this commandment begins in the home. Be faithful to God by honoring your family, particularly your mother and your father. The fourth commandment addresses the vulnerable. And it's interesting to me that the very next commandment, even though it moves outward, we're still addressing the vulnerable. Because when are our parents most vulnerable? As they age. And God deeply cares. He cares about how we treat them. You see, until their last breath, they are an image bearer of God. So provide compassionate care. Show grace. Preserve their dignity. Show empathy and understanding and love them well. Show them honor. The New Testament calls obedience to parents right, and it identifies that this is the first commandment that has a blessing attached to it. Now, I'm trying to teach my two-and-a-half-year-old this, but um, we'll see. We're trying to memorize this together in the house, but it's Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. And with my daughter, we try to say, Vera, obey mommy in the Lord as mommy obeys Jesus. And the verse goes on to say, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well for you and that you may have a long life in the land. You see, God blesses us when we honor and respect our parents. Now, I know that there are some of us here with very, very difficult relationships with your parents or with your in-laws, and the call to honor them feels very hard. But this verse is not saying that you can't have boundaries. This verse is also not saying that you have to place yourself under abuse. You see, honor and respect can be extended both in person and from a distance through the way that we regard someone in our hearts. I'm going to say that again. Honor and respect can be extended both in person and from a distance through the way that we honor someone in our hearts. Sometimes the most honoring thing that you can do is to show self-control, is to treat others the way that you would want to be treated, to not react, to not have something to say about every opinion that you have, but to show meekness, to show strength with a quiet and humble spirit, trusting that God sees. So the fifth commandment is saying, if you cannot honor the people in your home, you are unlikely able to honor those outside of your home. So this is why in our commandments, where we're focused on other relationships, where does it begin in our home? Do this here first. And if you do other relationships, you will be able to show honor. So God warns his people that loving others begins in your home. Commandments 6 through 10 are going to shift to our relationships with our neighbor, and these commandments will instruct us how to live as a society. So God instructs us that obedience to him is displayed through how we love our neighbor. Commandment number 6, do not murder. 
Now, murder is the unlawful killing of another person without justification or a valid excuse, especially with malice or forethought. And it's important to define that. It is different from acts of manslaughter, acts of war, or the death penalty. And next week, we'll see that the consequence for murder is the death penalty. So this commandment is saying, do not unlawfully take life from another person. We're also in danger of murder when we entertain sin in our heart. And we can devalue another life through how we treat them. And so what is one way that we do this? Well, it's through our speech. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So the tongue has power to give life or to take life, and there are consequences for both. The way that we speak to one another matters. So to belittle someone, to disrespect them, to just be verbally reactive, to gossip, to slander, is a form of murder with your tongue. It is taking life from another image bearer of God rather than the call to give it. Murder may end with the hand, but it begins in the heart. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Another form of devaluing life is through unjust anger. And so let's look at the words from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, specifically from the New King James Version. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, many modern translations leave out that phrase, without cause. And that's important because not all anger is wrong. Sin angers God. Sin that harms people angers God. Sin that takes an innocent life angers God. And we should care about the things that make God angry and that God calls sinful. So the New King James phrase, without a cause, implies an unrighteous anger, an unjust anger that's rooted in sin. And this kind of anger grows into resentment, bitterness, revenge, hatred, and could eventually grow into death. Paul encourages us in the New Testament that when putting off the old self and putting on the new self, do not sin in your anger. Value the life of another human by extending forgiveness and asking God for humility and self-control. You see, the posture of our heart towards our neighbor matters. Again, murder may end with your hands, but it begins in the heart. So God warns his people, value the life of your neighbor. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. So adultery is the voluntary intercourse between a married person with someone other than their spouse. So this is saying do not be voluntarily unfaithful to the one that you are bound in covenant with. God takes sexual sin seriously and he calls us to do the same. 
See, adultery defiles a holy covenant, and this gives us both a physical warning and a spiritual warning because we are in covenant with God, and unfaithfulness to God is spiritual adultery. When we pursue the things of the world and when we pursue sin, we become one with sin and break our covenant with God. Now, this will be important for the Israelites to hear the warning about spiritual adultery as they are on their way to the promised land. Do not break your covenant with God. Do not make yourself one with the Canaanites or the other nations that surround you. Be faithful to God alone. In the book of Proverbs, a father is instructing his son the way to wisdom, which is faithfulness to God, or the way of folly, which is unfaithfulness to God, represented by sin and rebellion. And in this talk, where this father is having a conversation with his son, this is what he says in Proverbs 6, 27 through 29. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? So it is with the one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. And then the verse goes on to say, The one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. So the father is telling the son, playing with fire has a cost. Adultery never begins with sex. It always begins with the heart, and there are gradual actions that lead up to sex. And let's be clear, it's not a sin to be tempted. No matter what the temptation is, it's not sinful to be tempted. When you are tempted, you have an opportunity to go to the Lord, to flee from sin, or you have an opportunity to step towards the fire. So what does playing with fire look like in marriage? Flirting, searching for an ex on social media, searching for someone that you find attractive, entertaining the praise and attention, affirmation of someone other than your spouse, pri uh, private communication that you're not being honest about, um, or secrets. Deleting emails, deleting text messages, sharing half-truths. These are all behaviors that are ripe for sin to grow and grow until the fire eventually consumes you. What does playing with fire look like spiritually, though? It looks like a growing comfortability with sin, where you eventually justify your sin. And that, too, will burn you. We cannot play with fire and not expect to be burned. To pursue sin is to choose death. And if you want to read more about that, I encourage you to read the book of Proverbs. That is a very uh, simple summary of the entire book of Proverbs, is the way to wisdom or the way to death. But to pursue sin is to choose death. And the person who commits adultery destroys himself. So flee from the seduction of sin, both physically and spiritually. Faithfulness to God leads to life. Honor your marriage and honor your neighbor's marriage. 
So God warns his people, do not voluntarily have sexual relations outside of your marriage covenant. Commandment number eight, do not steal. Don't take what is not yours. Now, I doubt many of us have walked into a store before and stolen merchandise. But how many of us have streamed an account that is not ours? Netflix, Hulu, you name it. Maybe it was um, given to you for a one-time use, but then you just slowly kept it on your screen, and now you've had it for free for a year. Um, Stealing can also look like not just taking physical things, but stealing an idea, taking credit for something that wasn't yours to take credit for. How does the commandment not to steal relate to the other commandments? Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not take what is not yours. God calls us to value our neighbor as ourselves, value their life, value their marriage, value their things. And what is at the heart of stealing? It's disbelief. We do not believe that what we have is enough. We don't believe that we can trust God with what he has chosen to give us or what he has chosen to withhold from us. So we take. But that's opposite to God's character. God blesses. God is generous. He provides. And obedience to God means that our actions show, God, I trust you, that what you have given me is enough. So God warns his people from the disbelief that he will not meet their needs. Commandment number nine, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, I grew up thinking this meant do not lie. And while it does, there's a deeper meaning that we'll get into in just a minute. But when it comes to lying, come to a kindergarten class and you will hear very, very honest feedback. One day, I I vividly remember this was like the first week of school and this cute little blonde girl came in late, she was tardy, but she burst through the door, she came in holding her backpack and she was so proud and she said with the most energetic, huge smile on her face, I'm sorry we're late, my mom had diarrhea this morning. (laughs) Oh man, I could always count on a kindergartner to also notice when I was wearing less makeup. Mrs. Sandler, are you sick? Mrs. Sandler, do you not feel good? No, I, I feel fine. So go no further than a young child to give you honest feedback or to learn something about their parents. <laughs> but if you want to hear the truth about a playground dispute or an argument and who had what role, good luck. <laughs> now, if we pay careful attention to the ninth commandment, it's not just do not lie. It's do not give false witness against your neighbor. And to give false testimony was to intentionally deceive a judge or a jury in a dispute. And if that person was successful in deceiving them, that meant grave consequences for the person who was accused. And God cares about injustice. So the way that we administer justice matters. The way that Israelites will administer justice will represent God's justice to the nations around them. 
So God warns his people, be honest and be just. The Tenth Commandment, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the Tenth Commandment addresses the root of all sin, the heart. Do not idolize what you do not have. And this verse in particular points out what this person does not have by pointing out what their neighbor does have. The neighbor's wife, the male, the female servant, the ox, the donkey. Do you see all the possessions that are listed? Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So where does Paul say sin is rooted? In idolatry. Wanting what we do not have is rooted in idols. So why are these commandments and not just suggestions? What do these commandments warn us? God warns us that his, or God warns his people that idolatry of the heart leads to sin. So the Israelites have heard the audible voice of God speaking these commandments over them. And they see the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain shaking. And the text says that they were terrified and they were afraid. And they beg Moses to be our intercessor because they are fully exposed before a holy God. So why are they terrified? Because they have seen God's standards for holiness and they cannot meet it. They are exposed. They cannot meet his standards for holiness. And this is why an intercessor is needed. Moses tells the people that God is warning them to keep them from sinning. And what attribute of God does that reveal? God's warning is his mercy to keep you from stumbling. So we must take sin seriously because to entertain sin is to entertain death. Sacrificing sin in our hearts is what will lead to life. So God saves his people and he delivers them from bondage to walk in freedom to love. Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, Teacher, what command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And Paul emphasizes this, in Romans 13:8 do not owe anyone anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law Jesus also says I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the law he is the one who perfectly loved God and loved others 
So do you want to love God? Do you want to be faithful to him? Do you want to obey God? Look to Jesus. Do you want to love others as yourself and be faithful to your neighbor? Look to Jesus. Abundant life is found in loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself. Follow Jesus' example. So some reflection questions to close. What idols has the Lord exposed to you in his mercy? Do you love others as yourself? Do you give life to others? Or have you been taking life from others? Do you see God's commandments as restrictions to keep you from living a fulfilled life? Or do you see them as mercy? for your ultimate joy. You see, faithfulness and obedience produce a harvest of righteousness, treasures that store up where moth and rust cannot destroy. And so, like that little kindergartner who cannot wait to earn his trip to the treasure chest, may we be faithfully and joyfully obedient, knowing that it's in our faithfulness and obedience to God that we store up treasures in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we are just like the Israelites. We are prone to wonder and prone to worship creation over the Creator. When faced with your standards, we are exposed and we cannot match up, which is why we need your son, Jesus, to be our intercessor. Thank you for your mercy that you warn us what sin is to keep us from sinning. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who instructs our hearts, encourages faithfulness, and warns us when we are in danger. And Lord, forgive us, humble us, and sanctify us. Help us to grow in our desire to know you, love you, and obey you, so that we too are a people set apart to bring you glory and honor and praise. Amen. Thank you, Heather.